And in this story, there was great grief. This book, chapter one, is grief and sorrow. We remember that from a few weeks ago. It's sorrow. Ten years, you lose your husband and both your boys. Ladies, that's, that's as deep as the knife of sorrow can cut in a woman's heart. And yet these daughter-in-laws were so close to their mother-in-law, and they clung to her, and she said, no, no, I'm going back to Bethlehem because I heard there's food there, and I got to go reboot my life. And of course, when they left, they sold their land, their property, their, their possessions. Her and her husband had sold all that. So she's going back to where she used to live. They no longer have the house. They no longer have the property. They're going back. She's going back by herself, and she's going back in bitterness. Ruth, one of the two daughter-in-laws, refused to stay in Moab, but chose to go with her. Remember what she said? Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That she was all in with Jehovah and the Israelites and the people of covenant. She left her friends, her family, her, her peer group from high school, if you will, everything she knew, the gods of Moab, including Chamosh, the bully god, she left all that to go with her mother-in-law to the land of Israel, who had been perpetual enemies of the highest order to the Moabites, because the, the feeling of animosity was mutual between the Moabites and the Israelites. They were perpetually at war. And it's in that background that she goes back. Naomi comes back to town. Everyone's so happy to see her. She's 10 years older, and she has the face of grief and sorrow. But they're all happy to see her. And she said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. Then in chapter 2, there Ruth is with Naomi, and they're, they're poor. They're at the lowest entry level of society. They're rebooting the whole thing. It's like when you go home and you got nothing, you got to live with your parents, you don't have a job, you don't have income. It, it's just, it, they're at the lowest place possible and they got to walk past where they used to live and what they used to own in that process. It's, it's, it's a very low point. But in God's economy and in his law, he had provision for the poor. And the provision for the poor in Israel is that when people glean the fields, they can only glean their field once, so you can come in behind them and get whatever's left over. It was his social aid program for his people. And it was a good thing. It was in the law of God, so it was in the word of God. And as that background, we saw Ruth go out into the field and glean, and as she asked for favor in the eyes of Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi, and she found favor from Boaz, and then she asked for more favor from Boaz, and Boaz said, don't go on any other field, glean from this field. And Naomi said, this is a great thing, and she blessed the Lord. So the end of chapter 2 is Naomi's blessing the Lord, when the end of chapter 1 she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. So we see the upgrade she got from Boaz elevating everybody and how that played out. So if it's a four, four episodes of this incredible story of God's plans and purposes, we are now on episode 3. Chapter 3. It is that background that we now read this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing the barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice a place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. 
And she said to her, all that you said to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and he turned himself. And there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman, a woman of character. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. And lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. And then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. That's to the other workers with him. Also he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. This is what he spoke to Ruth. And when she held it, he measured six portions of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six portions of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And then Naomi said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. It's great. It's a great chapter. I mean, episode three leaves you hanging. I can't wait to get to chapter four next week. I've already taught this once this week on Tuesday night. Such a profound chapter in the Bible. Such an amazing story. It's so easy to go right past this off-ramp on your journey through the Bible. What an amazing story. As I've thought about this chapter all week, and specifically even after teaching it Tuesday, because when I go from verse by verse to topical, I try and go from various topics to one key topic. You know, kind of shape the clay on the wheel. And what's really our topic? And what really are the points within the text for the topic? This is a tricky chapter for that. I mean, it's like finger painting all over the wall. It's beautiful. It's a mosaic. It's got all these things going on. It's got layers like the whole book. Well, as I considered and meditated on this chapter, I really came down to this key thought divine destiny. This book is a story of divine destiny. And this chapter is yet another apex in the divine destiny of God's plan for this, at first sight, unlikely couple to come together as a man and a woman in the union of marriage and to produce offspring from which Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will come. A Moabite woman a generation younger with an Israelite man, a generation older, a godly man, a good man, a man who honors the Lord and blesses the Lord, and a Moabite woman, a Gentile, from a faraway land of a formerly an enemy people, all in to be with 
whatever the plan is that Jehovah, God of the burning bush, Mount Sinai, has for her, and what God has for her in her commitment to her mother-in-law to bless her mother-in-law. And even Naomi, who's sort of best supporting actress in this story, because it really is about Ruth, there's some special detail to her, not just in this book, but in this chapter. There are three key people in this chapter. Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. And their lives are connected on a pretty much a 12-hour window from maybe 6 in the evening to 6 in the morning, or maybe 9 in the evening till 9 in the morning. And as we talked about last week, they're in the context of just serving the Lord. Just in the context of serving the Lord, Boaz is out in the field. He pronounces blessings upon his workers when he shows up to work. They pronounce blessings back on him. He's a great guy to work for. You want him to be your boss. And it's in that field that Ruth shows up according to the law of God to rightfully glean from the field according to God's word. And in that background of God's word, their relationship happened. And they had eye contact. And they had conversation. And there's a relationship now between Boaz, who we call the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, and this Moabite woman, the widow of one of his relatives in the field. And Naomi's the link to this story. And we talked about how that conversation took place. And in all the universe, and in all the people on planet Earth, it is these two people. It is this man, Boaz, who stood faithful in the land during a famine and built his business, a business that employed other people in a difficult time. It is this man who's been born at this time and whose heart toward the Lord is proven at this time, who would seem never married because there's no mention of another woman or other children or any heirs. This man, Paul said in Acts 17 that God predetermines when we'll be born, where we'll be born, and the timeline of our life. All of our lives really are destiny and opportunity according to God's decree. But this man, from the time of judges, he's not a judge. He comes to that day in chapter 2. And this woman, with all those promises like Abraham, in you all nations will be blessed, she's one of those nations. She comes from a whole other background, and she lives at this time. But he lived 20 years in front of her, probably 55 and 35, probably our age distinction. And she comes into the field. He's the man of wealth and power and esteem. She's the woman at the lowest entry point of society doing the one job that's the first job you can do in any country when you're a foreigner and you just got here and it's a job no one wants to do, if you will, the lowest point of society. And she comes here and he comes there and they have the conversation And then before we get to the story of chapter 3, there would have been probably a month or a month and a half between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. So daily she's in the field. Daily he's showing up. The employees, the Lord bless you, bless you. She's seen how this man operates, how he carries himself, how he treats people. And he sees how she's working for her mother-in-law, how she's working with the other young ladies that work for him. Now know this, Boaz could have probably married anyone in Israel at this time. You know, of movies and songs about rich, older men marrying younger women, there's no shortages. I mean, Marilyn Monroe's most famous movie is How to Marry a Millionaire, right? Like, that's, this is famous. That's the American way. So he has the place to provide security for a woman. I mean, what does Naomi say in chapter, the first verse? I want to get you security. This man can provide you security. 
and some women will give up young love and romance and all these things to marry into wealth. Of movies of that happening in different societies in American culture movies, there's no shortage of those movies either. Who can forget you older people fiddler on the roof? Where the young guy and the young girl, the two Jewish people, they love each other, but the parents want him to marry, her to marry the butcher, right? The butcher's the older man, but he can provide security. One of the most famous movies of all time, Fiddler on the Roof. These things, especially because it's a Jewish culture in Fiddler on the Roof, it gives an idea like how, how people think like this. It's important to the backdrop of this story. So as we come to chapter 3, Boaz is the Goel. Now, he didn't, when he was conceived in the womb, he didn't determine like what family he's born into, what land he inherits. It's really Jeremiah 1, before I knew you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. God knows our destiny before we're born. The purpose of life is to enter into that salvation through Christ and fulfill that work he's created us for. We are his workmanship to become the work of art he wants us to be. That's what Boaz was. He couldn't determine that he lived around, you know, 1150 B.C., that he's Jewish and not Chinese or something else. He couldn't determine that. This is what he was, this was his purpose. God determined he'd be a Jewish man and shaped his character and who he was by his word. And he's the Goel. You can't just say, I want to be a Goel. Just like you couldn't just say, I want to be a Levite and serve in the priesthood. If you're a Levite, you're a Levite in the Old Testament. If you're not, you're not. If you're not a Kohathite, you're not carrying the Ark of the Covenant. If you're Marite, you need the carts and you carry the, the, the curtains and all that stuff that go to the tabernacle. It's God who determines what he wants us to be. And we should settle for nothing less than what we're meant to be and ascribe for nothing more because that's out of our lane. But to be fully who we're meant to be and to be comfortable in our own skin with who God's called us to be, that's the real purpose of life in the kingdom of God when we're born again in the Spirit. To be a Spirit-filled woman or man Fulfilling the, the destiny of God in our life, day by day, weeks become months, months become seasons, seasons become years, years become decades, and then you're in eternity. That's really what the upper call of God in Christ Jesus is. And Boaz, without choice, by his being born a male, being born a Jew, being born in Judah, being born in Bethlehem, he is the key. He is the Goel. Now, he's Goel number two, which we'll get to next week more. He is the one that, according to God's word, again, God's word, not just the poor gleaning in the field, but he's the one that can redeem Ruth's land back to her, that can give Ruth offspring for an inheritance to come from her. He's the one, if someone murdered someone in the family, that he can go find that person, hold them accountable legally for that. There was responsibilities. You really are the, you know, those of you that have trust and, you know, beneficiaries and trustees and successor trustees, and you older people understand this, younger kids are going like, what's he talking about? Look, someone's in charge of the money. Someone's in charge of the wealth, and that is the executive trustee. And then you have subsequent trustees. The Goel essentially has almost a power of attorney, trustee type of power to represent the family in God's economy and God's law to go get that land back, to buy that house, that property back 
for Ruth. Whoever Amalek sold it to, as they go, well, he has the right to buy it back. Because it was God's inheritance to that family. And he also, also in the law, that there would be offspring to receive the inheritance, there's the whole stipulation where if a brother dies and has no children, then another brother takes the wife and provides children for her that the inheritance continues for that line of the family. That this is hard to understand is without a doubt because the Sadducees came to Jesus in the Gospels and said, hey, when they try to catch Jesus in a trap, we all remember the Sadducees, uh, hey, you know, a man has a wife and he dies and, and then uh, he doesn't have any children, but the brother gets the wife and then he dies, no children, then the other brother, the other brother, seven brothers, seven people had this woman as a wife. Whose wife is she in heaven? And remember what Jesus said. So he took the story of the Goel. Listen, the Sadducees took the story of the Goel and made a mockery of it. And they came to Jesus and said, hey, how's this work? And don't forget what he said. You are greatly mistaken, and you neither know the power of God or the things of God. He, one of the strongest rebukes he gives is to the Sadducees for taking something beautiful, the power of the Goel to raise offspring for the inheritance, which is hard for us to understand, but nonetheless, it's of the Lord, so accept it as a good thing. Because everything God does is good, and you know it's a good thing. And he reproves them for it. And he says, in heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels. So he just took them to heaven, they're like, they're stuck on earth, they're Sadducees. Anything heavenly, Sadducees don't get it. That's why they're sad, you see, right? That's how it works. Like, they don't get it. They just are earthly. They're all about earthly doctrines, not heavenly doctrines. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, so they had different, different things, but they got that one right. So Boaz is the Goel that is born with a destiny in this story. You see, for all the young men that might be handsome in Israel, or the young men that Ruth left behind in Moab that would have been interested in her, when she committed to be with the God of Israel and to be with the people of the God of Israel, and she committed to be there for Naomi no matter what came in her life, and because she was married to Naomi's son in her first marriage, she is the link. You see? She is the link for the redemption of the property. She is the link for the redemption of the inheritance. And for that to happen, if she's going, if she's going to serve her mother-in-law, I'm going to die by your side, she said in chapter 1. I'm with you forever. She wants to fulfill what would have been her place with her original husband under her father-in-law and her mother-in-law. She wants to still fulfill that even though they're all gone. And to do that, she must be yoked to the Goel. She must, she must be willing to give up her life and her freedom to marry a handsome Moabite man or a handsome, Mo, a handsome Israelite man in Bethlehem. That she could have had any young man is quite clear when Boaz said, you'd show more kindness at the end than the beginning because you could have married any of these young guys, rich or poor, basically saying, you could have married anybody. When a man says to a woman, a generation beneath him, listen, you've shown great kindness, you, you could have married anybody in Bethlehem, rich or poor. What kindness you've shown me that you would marry me. It's a powerful statement what he says there. He declares she could have married anyone. 
So she didn't have to marry him for security. She could have married anyone else for security. That's what Boaz says in the Bible. So she's not just marrying him for security. She could have married anyone for security, according to Boaz's testimony. But for the messianic line, because this is where it's going, to Jesus. Now, she wouldn't know this. Here's more backdrop. You know, in Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies about his 12 sons. Remember that prophecy? He speaks over Naphtali, Zebulun, all that. And what does he say about the tribe of Judah? He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. He prophesies around 2000 BC that from the tribe of Judah, the kings shall reign. And yet in the book of Judges for 300 years, have we seen anyone from Judah rise up and reign? No. Was Moses from Judah? No. Joseph in Egypt 400 years before? No. They've existed as a people of covenant under the Abrahamic covenant for 700 years from that prophecy, and not one person has ever reigned over these people from the tribe and the family of Judah. And they've been in the land for 300 years, and with all those judges, not one has been from the tribe of Judah. And yet here, Boaz, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, he is from the tribe of Judah. This is where it all begins, or extends, because we'll see next week it really begins with Judah himself back in Genesis 37. But 700 years of silence for the promise that Jesus would come, the redeemer of the world, that Jesus would come who would redeem the world by his blood from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 5 yet to happen. Where the 24 elders sing in Revelation, you have redeemed us by your blood, representing the church. From this to that, and Jesus on the cross and risen in the middle, is this line of the Messiah. And it's a story of redemption. And for 700 years, that promise of redemption, the kingly redemption coming, has been silent. Until this night, when Boaz goes to sleep on the threshing floor, and this Moabitess woman, the widow, comes in and lays at his feet. Isn't that amazing? Faith is the substance seen hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not going to come to pass. And just because there's no precedent doesn't mean it's not going to come to pass. The king's coming, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And he will establish his kingdom on earth. And there will be a time when there's no more tears and no more sorrow. Because that's the full redemption. Because the Goel, the real Goel over the entire story, of course, is Jesus Christ. He redeems the universe. We're told in Romans 8, he will redeem the entire universe, which is under the law of entropy, which is the result of Adam and Eve's original sin and death. This universe is dying because of Adam introducing sin into this universe of time, space, and matter. And as you go a trillion galaxies out from where we're at at planet Earth, everything is dying while it's expanding. And Romans 8 tells us God's going to redeem it. And he tells us it's Earth that's dying, that he'll make a new heaven and a new Earth. He'll redeem the planet. And the ultimate redemption is the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve who become joint heirs with Christ, being adopted into the kingdom, Romans 8, through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 5, singing, worthy is the lamb who's redeemed us by his blood. That is the bigger panoramic over this story of a man and a woman 
about 1150 BC. One, the man from Judah and the woman from Moab, a generation apart. Boaz's destiny is to be born a Jew, to be born of the tribe of Judah, to be the first one of Judah to establish something that's going to happen and change the history of Israel and bring the king of the Jews to the Jews. For, of course, Obed will be born, then Jesse, and then David. The great king David is his great-grandson from his marriage with Ruth. And from David will come all those kings that we'll read about when we get to 1 Kings and 2 Kings, probably later this year. And then eventually, it's all there for us in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. In, Luke's, in Matthew's gospel, he only takes it back to Abraham as the head of the Jews. And in that gospel, we, both, we get the mention of both Boaz and Ruth that Jesus came through them. Now, Luke's gospel takes us from Jesus all the way back to Adam, and we only get the mention of the men, and we get Boaz. Isn't that amazing? So Boaz steps in to restore what's lost here, but he's the one that ends up going on the record, not Elimelech or his son. It's a fascinating story. But Boaz was born for this purpose, And all that God worked in his life for character as a man, the kind of man he is, that shows up at work and he blesses people and they bless him back. The kind of man who stays through the famine and prospers and trusts in the Lord when other people are are tempted to panic and flee to faraway lands. He's that man. He's better than Adam in many ways. Adam and Eve in the garden is beautiful, a husband and a wife. And God presiding over their marriage, naked and unashamed. It's a beautiful story. But sin entered, and all kinds of things went wrong. You just don't find men like Boaz in the Bible that often. Joseph's kind of like this. Daniel, it's hard to find good men. And Jesus is the perfect man. And Boaz was a good man. There's no flaw or blemish on this man's life. We just spent, we spent a couple weeks with Samson. Can we agree? There's plenty of flaws on Samson's life. Samson got the headlines. Boaz didn't even have Instagram. He's just doing what his father wanted him to do, his heavenly father. And he's a good man. And he's going to treat this woman with respect and dignity like a woman should be treated by a man of God. There's, he's the kinsman redeemer. And that this isn't just a legal relationship, we must understand because God uses work supernaturally in in a natural way. Pastor Chuck used to say all the time. Men are designed to be attracted to women and vice versa. And who can explain the destiny of how two people come together in marriage? Like my wife and I met in a junior college class. She never took a junior college class in her life to that class. And we met in that class. It was a destiny and a divine purpose in that. I was thinking about my, my daughter Hannah and, and Nate Gallagher, how they met. And, you know, Joe Henschel's leading worship here tonight. And I have an interesting story. In 2001, we went back to Florida, to Brandon, Florida, when John Randall was pastoring in Florida. And I went with my daughter Hannah and my son Timmy. We stayed at the Randall's house. And Joe Henschel went back with his band. He was a teenager, farewell down. And we did a youth conference for three days at Brandon. You know, Nate Gallagher was a young kid and came to that conference with his dad. 
And they have a picture of me with him at this. He's a little kid. You know, he's kind of chubby, too. Like, tall, handsome Nate Gallagher's, like, kind of short and chubby. Um, but life works that way. And uh, so I have a picture with him. Jim wanted to get me to get a picture. You know, hey, Joy Brand, so I get a picture with Joy Brand, because Jim, of course, is a great surfer from Huntington Beach, and I get this picture. And I thought about this. For that weekend, and Hannah and Nate talked about this occasionally, Hannah and Nate, who would be married in a future time, just were crossing paths that whole weekend. And who would know that he'd be the, the pastor and she'd be the pastor's wife and the destiny that he had purpose for their lives. And you would have never known all that. But then Jacob and Leah fall in love and Nate's Jacob's best friend and, and Hannah's Leah's sister. So lo and behold, I'm doing their wedding, that, that wedding so many years ago. And they come forward. I brought Leah forward. Hector welcomed everybody. Then I got up there and I'm reading. I'm, like, I'm, in, you know, I'm in shock doing my daughter's wedding. And uh, I look over, and I see Nate, because the guys are here. He looks at Hannah. And I'll never forget, you've, you've heard this story, but he's, he's like, so this is Nate. Um, like, he's right here, and he's looking this way. And, you know, he's, he's the best man, and, and Hannah's the uh, bridesmaid, whatever. And I see him, and he's like this. He sees Hannah, and he goes, I was like, what? I'm doing this wedding for my other daughter. And this guy, like, and, and you know, I remember what Hannah did. She's, she's over she's like, I was like, did I just see that? Like, I literally did a hiccup pause in the middle of this wedding ceremony for Jake and Lee going like, did I, did I just, did I imagine that? Well, later on the dance floor, I knew I did not imagine it. Because Nate just came around like, he's got like this cool little groove shit he does. He's like, hey, what's up, Pops? I'm like, what's up, Pops? Like, divine destiny. How can you explain this stuff? How can you explain that? Nate Gallagher's dad used to share Jesus with me, and I resented it. He was the guy that bugged me that hung out with Mike Harris. Mike Harris was cool. I didn't like Jim Gallagher. I don't like him. I don't like him at all. I like green eggs and ham. I just don't like him. I don't at all. Because you always say, what are you doing? You say, you walk with Jesus and you're doing living like that. I'm like, what's it to you, man? Mind your own business. I'm Joey Brand. Get lost, punk. <laughs> How could you even know these things? See, this study should remind everyone in this room, your life matters. Who you are. When you're born, your family, for good or bad or anything in between, your interests, your talents, your timeline, all of it, your education, your lack of education, it's like who you are is part of the whole mosaic of what God has for us. And Boaz is just such a testimony to this. Like everything in his life, how could he know when he's just being faithful and making the right decision when no one's watching because that's what integrity is? That they would make him the man he'd be, that God would bring this woman to him. And together, they'd have this child that would keep the messianic line going, establish Judah and the kingly line now through Judah, through him, and that the Messiah, God himself, would come through his son. How could you know such things? And it goes back to what we say with Ephesians 3. God is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask in his church for his glory. This story just has layers and layers and layers of glory and divine destiny over it. Also, what's interesting contextually, and it it does represent Jesus in the church, and that's why I say, like, you know, you don't want to make too much romantically out of it, because really, he is a type of Jesus, and and Ruth is a a type of the church. He redeems us. We, We get that. Any commentary on this book will have that. But I was thinking about this because he says, I'll do my duty, I'll do my duty. He says it twice. 
But when you got married, was it your duty? Like, really? I mean, unless you're like Catherine the Great marrying the grandson of Peter the Great as a Prussian princess, you know, the way monarchs and stuff like that, when Queen Victoria sent off her kids to go marry here and build the kingdom, like, that's duty. But, like, that's not really... And this is what really got me thinking about this, why this is, I, I think the beauty of the relationship has to keep coming out in this story because I think it's very important because we're not robots and we're not artificial intelligence. And I do believe that they were attracted to each other and they chose in their service to the Lord to come together in marriage. I firmly believe that. And here's what really got me thinking this on a slam dunk. For 34 years as a Calvary Chapel pastor, I heard from Pastor Chuck Smith that loving Jesus is not a legal relationship. It's a loving relationship. God loves us. Not romantically, obviously, but he loves us even greater than that, agape, Jesus on the cross. And since we love him because he first loved us, we've emphasized, I've emphasized as a Calvary Chapel pastor for 34 years, God is not calling you into a legal relationship. That's what I had growing up Catholic. But God is calling us into a loving relationship. Marriage with the Lord is not a legal relationship first. It's a loving relationship. And yes, those that are married, we understand there's love, there's phileo love, friendship love, there's eros love, sensual love, there's, but there has to be agape love. For as Christ loves the church, so a man is to love his wife. And as a wife submits, as the church submits to the Lord, a woman is to submit to her husband. We know that. I see all that in this story. But what's very interesting, so I do believe there's romantic attraction. I believe for the six, seven, eight weeks that they were working together, there are those moments where there's like a look where he's like, huh, where you catch that glimpse or whatever. I do believe that because people don't just get married out of duty and obligation like you're joining the Navy SEALs. And by the way, they get married, have a wonderful wedding, They are intimate and they have a son. You know, like. Now, you can say that Jacob and Leah was an obligation. But we don't know enough about that. And that's a whole different kind of story. That's too messy. This is a beautiful story. This is too beautiful. She came to him now. Now, he's the Goel. Now, she comes to him and lays at his feet. Now, she's a woman one generation younger. Boaz says you could have got anyone you wanted. And she comes with her A-game. As they say, she's all dolled up. She's, is, this is, she's made herself as beautiful as she can be. That's what Naomi told her to do. She comes into this room in the middle of the night. She comes at midnight as beautiful as she can be. Now, she's beautiful inwardly because she's a virtuous woman. Ironically, three generations, four generations later, it's attributed to Solomon, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, which would be one of her descendants, four generations down. She comes in, she lays at his feet, and what she says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing or under your garment. It's symbolism of under his covering for you are a close relative. She says, you are the kinsman redeemer. You're the Goel. I am Ruth. Now, here's what's amazing about this story. 
they would have both known. Obviously, she knew that he was the Goel. And he would have known he's the potential Goel. For he says, yes, I am, but there's one closer. He already knows the scouting report on what's in play here. So she comes to him and says this, and what she's saying is, will you marry me? She is asking him to marry her. And we talked about this Tuesday night. She's a Moabitess under the curse, or just clear from the curse. She's a widow, and she's the lowest position of employment in all of Israel. She has put forth her best appearance physically. She has her inward beauty that speaks for itself. And she comes to as probably the most powerful man in the community, lays at his feet, and says, will you take me as your wife? And in that request, it's very unique in that he's not going to take her as his wife for his inheritance and his trust in his estate. He's going to give up his trust in his estate to marry her to produce offspring for someone else's trust in estate. So she's given up all of her freedoms as a young woman to be the vessel of redemption, recipient of redemption for her mother-in-law, Naomi, but he himself is getting everything. He's a single man. Like, you know, like you kind of get settled in your ways. He has a, a life that he lives. It's all this certain way. It's maybe been a little uh, unsettled since she showed up in the field. Who knows? But he's not the kind of guy, like those movies, there's always those guys that force themselves on women, particularly younger women. He's not that guy. He's not that creepy guy. Or even that like, hey, he's not that guy. He knew that he could be her redeemer, her Goel, but he doesn't initiate it. And Sam and I were talking about this, but even as she's a type of the church, she chooses to come, and we have to choose to come to Jesus. We have to choose to come and submit to Jesus. And trust in Jesus. Let him be our security. Let him be our covering. Let him be our everything in our life. We have to choose that. It's our choice. He's not going to force himself on anyone. But the one who comes to me, I will no means cast out. She comes to him and says, will you take me as your wife? Now, I don't know what this man thought before that moment concerning Ruth in the field or any of that. But in that moment, this man is going to decide what the rest of his life is going to look like. And this man serves the Lord. This man blesses everybody in the Lord. This man is serving Jesus before Jesus even comes. It's a shadow of things to come. And this man gives up everything he's built his life for in that moment. And he says, first of all, he commends her. He pronounces blessings. Okay, when we saw that, he, this man wants to, this guy's always about the Lord. And the first thing he says is, blessed are you of the Lord. You know, we like that in a relationship, right? Like, ladies, don't you like it when the man is courting you? And it's like, blessed are you of the Lord. Like, this guy's just speaking blessings of the Lord for this woman. What greater security is that for a woman than a man who serves God and pronounces blessings upon her and really is that person? He really is that guy. So he pronounces this blessing on her and he commends her for her kindness. He tells her, don't fear. So she's totally vulnerable. Like, what if he rejects her? Like, what if he rejects her? 
Like the rest of her life in Bethlehem is like, yeah, did Boaz just like blew her off? Like we know how human beings are in a village. You kidding me? She totally, and he accepted her. She came in humility and he accepted her. And he said, don't worry, don't fear, I will do it. But then he told her, I don't have, I'm not the, the go-to Goel. Which brings up another thought before we wrap this up tonight. Is there is another Goel, and we'll see that in the next chapter. There was another relative, another man who was closer. So we have to ask ourselves, did Naomi not know there was another man who's closer? Did Ruth not know there's another man who's closer? Like, the registry is not hard to follow. I personally believe that there, they knew there was another man that was closer. And I, I don't have to leave it, nor do you. I'm just saying, we know next chapter, there's another man. So it's like, a, it's like this is the starting quarterback, this is the backup quarterback, whatever. There's, a, there's, there's an order. And how many times do I say this to you, by the way? In the Bible, usually it's, it's the vice president in the Bible that's the hero. Right? Like Daniel's number two in Babylon. He's the number two guy and gets it done. Joseph's number two in Egypt. Like God likes the two spot. Just so you know that. He likes, the, he likes the two spot. Men in the two spot and women in the two spot tend to shine really well. People in the one spot, they tend to get like Saul. I'll just do it my own way. I'm reading about Saul right now in Samuel. I'm just going to do my sacrifice the way I want to because I'm Saul. I'm the king. You know, like Gaston or something, you know. Boaz is in the two spot. He's in the two spot. So I just wonder if they knew that or they didn't know that. It's an interesting thought in this whole story. But he says, I'm there for you and I got your back. So this is how we, we end this chapter with a couple kind of like closing pictures. She's all in. He, he's destined. He's called to be the Goel, and he is the Goel, and he's one that's meant to be in the New Testament in the genealogies of Jesus Christ. For that purpose, he was born. And he prepared himself for that purpose, and he rose the occasion on this night between midnight and the, the, dawn, the breaking dawn. What a night. She was all in. Your God's my God. Your people are my people. She was all in and never looked back, and she was going to serve her mother-in-law, and she's... She could have chosen the other younger men. She could have chosen rich men, poor men, Moabite men. But she chose to serve Jehovah, God of the burning bush. And it brought her to the feet of Boaz. And they're going to spend the rest of their lives together. And this night, this is fascinating to me because there's a scene. It's midnight to sunrise. It's a man and a woman, unmarried, sleeping together. Not side by side. Now, a woman's from man's side, from the rib, and they're meant to be side by side. The next time they're sleeping together is in the next chapter, and they're sleeping together as a husband and a wife. But in this visual, they're not. But I, I just had to stop and think about this scene, because here's this woman who was so vulnerable. She says, will you take me? And he says, yes, I will. They have agreed to marry one another. They have agreed to give up their lives and come together as a man and a woman for the rest of their lives. And that's something we can relate to the married couples in this room. And that was their destiny. This girl growing up in Moab with Chamosh as her parents' God, the bully God, it was her destiny to pursue the God of Israel and marry this godly man in Israel. 
and like the church to be grafted in, like the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 2, be grafted in to the kingdom of God. That was her destiny. And she pursued it, went after it, and got it. Let us just pause here for a minute and say, isn't this a beautiful picture? This is not a man taking advantage of a woman or a woman seducing a man like the Proverbs women that are evil. This really is Proverbs 31. And for that night, they laid next to each other. And I wonder how much they slept. And if I'm filming this, you know, cinematography, I'm going to bring the volume down, and I'm just going to hear heartbeats. And I'm going to focus in on her face and what her eyes open, and then I'm going to swing to him, and I'm going to focus in on his face, eyes open, because they both committed their lives to each other under these circumstances that night, and it's a beautiful thing. And in the dawn, there's no awkwardness or shame like the world gets when they do something like this, right? There's no shame here when they wake up. But now they're looking at each other. You know, I, I kind of picture being like a little, hey, <laughs> picture this. These are human beings. We're not robots. We're not artificial intelligence. This is a man and a woman. And God's working through this. And he weighs out the, the, the barley and says, take it to your mother-in-law. See, everything is in the context of God's word. Everything is about others. Everything is about serving, loving. This is a pure chapter. This is pure as pure can be in the human experience. And it's so beautiful. To me, the scene of Ruth walking away with the, with the wheat, the barley, and, and Boaz going his way. And by the way, he's moving with purpose to the city gates to set this straight and make this woman his wife. And I just, I just see this, I have this scene where they're going separate directions and, you know, like, did he look back and she's not looking? Did she look back and he's not looking? Did he look back and see each other? God's designed us to live emotion in the human experience. All the emotions. And for the husbands and wives here tonight, I just want to remind you, he's designed us to be in love. He's designed us to be in love spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, to be in love, to always be enraptured with the bride of our youth. That's the way God's designed us. And it just reminds me to just be, it, it challenges me to be the most loving husband I can possibly be from here for eternity. And I hope it challenges the married people the same way. If you're not married, it is what it is. So you know but we're still designed to love and to think of others and put others first. And this story really is about that as well. Jesus Christ is our redeemer. And he's going to provide our security. And as we rest at his feet, as we yield our lives and our purposes to him, he will make very clear his divine purposes over our life. This chapter, this book is about divine destiny. And it's not something we manufacture. It's something we just walk in as we seek the Lord and yield our lives to the Lord day by day. And life is filled with tragedies. And she did want to change her name tomorrow. But life has joyful moments too. And as there's a season appointed to men and women under the sun, all the different seasons, we want Jesus Christ to be over all of them. Over the darkest day and over the most glorious day, he is our Goel. For he has redeemed us from the power of sin, 
the power of Satan, and the fear of the grave. And he will redeem this universe. He will redeem this planet. And he will redeem us into glory. For we are neither married nor given in marriage, but we're like the angels. We'll be in full glory. Hallelujah. Praise the King.